0: chapters 5 and 6 of through glacier park seeing america first with howard eaton by mary roberts reinhart this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter 5 running water and still pools holidays are rare with me so on those occasional days when the party rested i was up and away i happened to like to fish the same instinct which sent me as a child on my grand-aunt's farm armed with a carefully bent pin an old cigar-box full of worms and a piece of twine to sit for hours over a puddle in a meadow and fish for minnows the same ambition which took me on flying feet up the hillside to deposit my prey still wriggling in a water barrel, where for days i offered it food in the shape of broken crackers and wept to find eventually its little silver belly upturned to the morning sky. That joy of running water and still pools and fish is still mine. I cannot cast for trout. I do it, but my technique sets the boat to rocking and fishermen to grinding their teeth. But I had taken west with me a fly-book and a trout-rod, and I meant to use them. Now and then, riding along the trail, we met people who drew aside to let us pass, and who held up such trout as I had never dreamed of, or standing below a waterfall, would be a silent fisherman too engrossed to more than glance at our procession as it wound along. But repeated early attempts brought me not a single strike. Once, in my ardour, I fell into an extremely cold lake and had to be dried out for hours. I grew caustic about the trout. Then somebody, with the interests of the park at stake, said that he would make up a party and see that I caught some trout. He would see that I caught something, he said, if he had to crawl into the lake and bite my hook himself. So we went to Red Eagle Lake. There are trout in that lake. There are cutthroat trout, weighing four pounds. I sat in a boat with a man who drew one in. I saw two college boys in their undergarments standing up to the waist in ice water, and getting more large trout than I knew were in the world. I ate trout that other people caught, but they were bitter in my mouth. I threatened to write up Glacier Park as being a fishing failure. The result was calamitous. Earnest-eyed fishermen spent hours in rowing me about. They imperiled my life, taking me into riffles. They made me brave pneumonia and influenza and diverse other troubles in the determination that I should catch a mammoth fish, and nothing happened, nothing whatsoever. Once a man in the boat hooked a big one, and it ran under the boat. I caught the line and jerked the fish into the boat. That was the nearest I came to catching a large cutthroat trout at Red Eagle Lake. Later uh, on—but I haven't come to that yet— I did catch some fish at Red Eagle, I caught some Dolly Varden and rainbow trout. One of the earnest fishermen led me on foot over several miles of Rocky Mountain scenery, stopping ever and anon to show me where a large bear had passed. The trail was fresh. Here were the stones he had turned over for ants, the old trunks he had scratched for grubs. Then we arrived at the foot of a waterfall. What a place it was! The water poured down in clouds of spray on which the afternoon sun painted a rainbow. Tiny water oozels bathed and played in the pools in shallow rocks, and here, in deep holes, there were trout for the catching. The fishermen stationed me on a rock, weighted my hook, told me to drop in about forty feet of line, and stood still. They would hook themselves. They did. I caught eight in fifteen minutes but it was not sport it was as interesting as fishing for goldfish in an aquarium i lay that night at red eagle in a tent on a bed built of young trees driven into the ground and filled with balsam branches a pack-horse had carried up the blankets and pillows it was a couch for a queen in the forest a mountain lion screamed like a woman and at two o'clock in the morning one of the college boys got up from the cook tent where he was sleeping and said he thought he would go fishing. As I look back, that was a strange gathering in the fishing camp at Red Eagle, so very far from anything approaching civilization. There was a moving-picture man and his outfit, there were the two college men, there was the chief ranger of Glacier Park, there was a young couple from New England who were tramping through the park carrying their tent and other things on their backs they were very young and very enthusiastic i suspected them of being bride and groom although i did not know and the most vivid recollection i have is of seeing the young woman washing their camp dishes in the cleanest soapiest dishwater i had seen since i left home and there was a cook who is a business man in the winter and who made excellent soda biscuit and talked books to me that night around the campfire there were more stories told the college boys pye way the yale pitcher was one related many marvelous tales they said they were true well, i hope so if they were life is even more interesting and thrilling a thing than i had believed if they were fiction they had me beaten at my own game the next day was lowering and cold I spent the morning trying to get fish, and retired sour and disappointed when everyone else succeeded and I failed. Sometime I'm going back to Red Eagle Lake, and I shall take with me a tin of coral-colored salmon eggs, a trick I learned from George Locke on the Flathead River later on, and then I intend to have my photograph taken with strings of fish like bunches of bananas around me. End of chapter five. Chapter six. The call. As the days went on, there was a subtle change in the party. Women who had to be helped into their saddles at the beginning of the trip swung into them easily. Waistbands were looser, eyes were clearer. We were tanned, we were calm with the large calmness of the great outdoors. And with each succeeding day, the feeling of achievement grew. We were doing things and doing them without effort. To some of us the mountains had made their ancient appeal. Never again would we be clear of their call. To those of us who felt all this inevitably in the future would come times when cities and even civilization itself would cramp. I had traveled a great deal. The Alps have never held this lure for me. Perhaps it is because these great mountains are my own, in my own country. Cities call, I have heard them, but there is no voice in all the world so insistent to me as the wordless call of the Rockies. I shall go back. Those who go once always hope to go back. The lure of the great free spaces is in their blood. We crossed many passes. Dawson Pass was the first difficult Rocky Mountain Pass I had ever seen. There was a time when I had thought that a mountain pass was a depression. It is not. A mountain pass is a place where the impossible becomes barely possible. It is a place where wild game has, after much striving, discovered that it may get from one mountain valley to another. Along these game trails men have built new paths again and again we rode through long green valleys the trail slowly rising until it had left timber far below then at last we confronted a great rock wall a seemingly impassable barrier up this by infinite windings back and forward went the trail at the top was the pass i'm getting right tired said charlie russell a standin in a cloud up to my waist each new pass brought a new vista of blue distance of white peaks each presented its own problems of ascent or descent no two were alike mountain climbing is like marriage whatever else it may be it is always interesting there was the day we went over the cut-bank pass with instructions to hold our horses manes so that our saddles would not slip back i shall never forget my joy at reaching the summit and the horror that followed when I found I was on a rocky wall about twenty feet wide, which dropped a half-mile straight down on the other side to a perfectly good blue lake. There was Triple Divide. There was the Pagan Pass, where, having left the party for a time, I rode back to them on the pack-horse I have mentioned before, with my left foot dangling over eternity. Triple Divide. The trail had just been completed, and ours was the first party after the trail-makers. I had expected to be the first woman on the top of Triple Divide, but when I arrived, panting and breathless and full of the exultation of the moment, two girls were already there, sitting on a rock. I shall not soon recover from the indignant surprise of that moment. Perhaps they never knew that they had taken the laurel-wreath from my brow." Triple Divide is really the culminating point of the continent. It is called Triple Divide because water flows from it into the Gulf of Mexico, into the Pacific Ocean, and into Hudson Bay. There was the day when, on our way to gunsight, we rode for hours along a trail that heavy rains had turned into a black swamp. The horses struggled, constantly mired. It was the hardest day of the trip, not because of the distance, which was only thirty-five miles, but on account of the constant rocking in the saddle as our horses wallowed out of one jackpot into another. Jackpots, I presume, because they are easy to get into and hard to get out of. There was some grunting when at the end of that day we fell out of our saddles, but no complaining. That night, for the first time, the Eaton party slept under a roof at the Gunsight Chalet on the shores of a blue lake. The Blackfoot Glacier was almost overhead. It was the end of a hot July, but we gathered around a fire that evening and crawled in under heavy blankets to the quick sleep of fatigue. One more pass, and we would be across the Rockies and moving down the Pacific Slope the moon came up that night and shone on the ice-caps of the mountains all around us on the glacier on the gun-site itself appropriately if not beautifully named as far up the mountainside as the glacier our tired horses ranged for grass and the tiny fire of the herder made a red glow that disappeared as the night mist closed down no come and get it the next morning but a good breakfast nevertheless a frosty morning with the sun out and the moving picture man gone ahead to catch us as we climbed there was another photographer who had joined the party he had been up at dawn on the chance of snapping a goat or two late the next night when after a hard day's ride we had reached civilization again at lake macdonald and had dined and rested The ambitious young man limped into the hotel on foot. For more than twenty miles he had tramped, carrying a heavy plate camera and extra plates. The zeal of the artist had made him careless. He left his horse untied, and it promptly followed the others. Of the last part of that trip of his afoot I do not care to think. The trail, having scaled great heights, below the Sperry Glacier, dropped sharply into the dense forest of the Pacific slope. There were bears there. We saw seven at one time the next day, six black and one silver tip on the very trail he had covered. But he got the picture. Once over the crest of the gunsight there was a change in the air. It blew about us, warm with the heat it had gathered in the South Pacific. Such animal life as the altitude permitted was out, basking in the sun. There were still snowfields in the shadows, but they were not so numerous. The rocks threw back the sun-rays on to our burned faces. The trail dipped, climbed, dipped again. Here on a ledge was a cry, Pack train coming, and we halted to let pass by a train of men on horseback and of laden little burros tidy and strong climbing again the trail was lost in the shale and arrows painted on the rocks gave us the direction two lakes lay together below one appeared from our elevation rather higher than the other rather higher the rock wall that separated them was fourteen hundred feet high and vertical as we began the last descent the party grew silent it was the last leg of the journey. A day or so more, and we should be scattered over the continent on whose spine we were so incontinently tramping. Back to civilization, to porcelain bathtubs and coarse dinners and facial massage, to stays and skirts, to roofs and servants and the vast impedimenta of living. Sperry Chalet and Luncheon No more the ham and coffee over a wood fire, the cutting of much bread on a flat stone. Here were tables, chairs, and linen. Alas, there was a waitress who crumbed the table and brought in dessert. Back, indeed, with a vengeance, but only to the ways of civilization itself. All afternoon we went on, descending always through the outriders of the forest to the forest itself dusk came dusk in the woods with strange soft paddings of unseen feet with a grey light half religious half fairy that only those who penetrate to the hearts of great forests can know it makes me think of death Someone said in a low tone just a great shadow no colour nothing real and silence and infinite distance then Lake MacDonald. We burst out of the forest on a run. The horses had known, by the queer instinct of horses, that just ahead would be oats and a corral and grass for the eating. They broke into a canter. The various things we had hung to ourselves during the long, slow progress over the mountain rattled and banged. We hung on in a kind of mad exultation, We had done it. We had crossed the Continental Divide, the Lewis Overthrust, whatever geographers choose to call it. The trail led past a corral, past a vegetable garden such as our eastern eyes had seldom seen, under trees, around a corner at a gallop, then the Glacier Hotel at Lake MacDonald, generally known as Lewis's soft winds from the pacific blew across lake macdonald and warmed us great strawberries were ripening in the garden our horses got oats all they could eat in a pool in front of the hotel lazy trout drifted about there was good food again there were people dressed in civilized raiment people who looked at us and our shabby riding clothes with a disdain not unmixed with awe There was fox-trotting and one-stepping, in riding boots, with an orchestra, and that night at Lewis's they gave Howard Eaton a potlatch. A potlatch is an Indian party. An Indian's idea of a party is to give away everything he possesses and then start all over again. That is one reason why our Indians are so poor today we sat in a great lobby hung with indian trophies and bearskins sat in a circle with howard eaton in the center there were a few speeches and some anecdotes then the potlatch went on there were hot fried trout sandwiches and chips of dried meat buffalo and deer i believe there was beer after that came the gifts everybody got something Howard Eaton received a waistcoat made of spotted hide, and the women got necklaces of Indian beads. It was extraordinary, hospitable, lavish, and western. To have a party and receive gifts is one thing, but to have a party so you can give away things is another. End of chapter 6